Welcome to episode 87 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, our guest is Luke Robluski, who's a user experience expert and whose work has reached more than 700 million people worldwide. Luke is also an entrepreneur in residence at Benchmark Capital. Hey, Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you guys doing? So as a show that primarily, that's primarily about tech and startups, we've interviewed a lot of technologists and entrepreneurs, but you're actually the first UI expert that we've had on the show. So I suppose the first question I'd like to ask you is if you could give us a little bit of an overview of the design field as it stands. I mean, there, there are web designers, there's user experience, UI experts, and I don't know, I guess I'd just like to get a better understanding of what are all the roles and, and how do you see it currently? Yeah, uh, you know, it really, the quintessential design answer to every question is it depends. And so I'll sort of start <laughs> off with that, with that answer because it really does depend on who you ask and um, what profession and kind of background they come from. The design person, especially, profession, especially with interactive software, a lot of people came to it from a large diversity of backgrounds when the web kind of took off. And so you had people coming from human factors backgrounds, from uh, cognitive psychology backgrounds, from uh, computer science backgrounds, from graphic design backgrounds, library and information science backgrounds. And, you know, in truth, all those factors really add up to creating an appropriate user interface for a software product, whether it's on the web or on the desktop or on your mobile device. You know, you sort of have to think about how does the information structured, how do people make their way through it? How are we presenting that information visually? How are we presenting that information uh, textually, too? So things like copywriting kind of play into it. So it's really an opportunity for a lot of people from different fields to come in with an area of vertical expertise. You know, someone might be an incredible copywriter, so they add a lot of clarity to an interface. And then if they pick up more horizontal skills, around um, sort of interaction design or maybe information architecture, then they become a more well-rounded, quote-unquote, full-on product designer. And right. people can do that from the development side too, right? There's no reason someone that's been building things and has had to deal with interaction issues like feedback, state management, you know, flows and processes could do. What, what would be the difference between UI and UX? That's something that uh, often gets asked. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I, I don't like to get into the semantics, but, you know, in general, user experience tries to be very, very broad and cover everything that somebody can encounter with a product. Some people go very, very broad with it and cover um, not just the experience of the product, but the experience of the retail store. So if you think of, you know, the quintessential example of Apple, they've got retail stores, they've got hardware, they've got software, they've got customer support, they've got a web presence, they have marketing, all that together um, in many people's eyes informs the user experience, which is pretty big, right? It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that's why I tend to say, hey, interface design is a little bit more concrete. It deals with software. It sort of deals with interaction design, visual design, uh, content. And I, I think you can wrap your head around that space a little bit more than you can around user experience sometimes. It, it seems like yeah, sort of the naive understanding of the field is that you have uh, the, the coders who build the product and then you have a web designer. But it seems like that's not really the case anymore, at least for the more sophisticated products. You you have designers who might actually draw pictures of how things might look, but the, the people who try and come up with a flow of tasks, or, or I guess what you might call the workflow, and what elements are seen on the screen at any given time, and maybe even where they're placed and how big they are, that's what the UI designer does that, if it's sort of at a bigger firm? Yeah, it's, it's such a blur. In bigger firms, there tends to be kind of, I guess, 
uh, on, the, on the actual UI design side, there tends to be a couple of roles. So many companies uh, specialize around visual design and creative design. So they've got somebody who's sort of responsible for the look and feel, the brand representation, and sort of the overall visceral aspects of the design. Right. Then they're likely to have an interaction designer or a UI designer, depending on the title. And that person is responsible for what are the elements on each piece of the flow? How does the flow go? How are they organized? Sometimes there's even deeper specialization in that area where you have someone called an information architect whose job is to manage like just very large sets of data. Uh, that's, that's where that usually is most useful. When you're dealing with you know, very large catalogs, you need to have ways to navigate through them and you have to have ways to make relationships with it, assign metadata to it, uh, label it appropriately. In, in the early days of the web, this, this process of sort of information organization and architecture is very important because most sites were essentially navigation fests, right? You just right. had a bunch of pages and the primary user interaction was moved between them. So you had to know where you are, where you can go, what other options are there. So information architecture is a lot more important. But um, in today's web, you know, people navigate so organically through things like search and links and feeds that a lot of times that structure is just kind of overkill. And it's the interactions that matter a bit more. So I think you're seeing more of a focus on the UI and interaction design than the information architecture. But some companies still specialize. So take, take a site like Craigslist, right? Is that essentially pure information architecture without any design? You know, everything is designed whether that design is intentional or not. Right? <laughs> okay, right. There is no, you know, the alternative to, there is no no design. It's either good design or bad design. And some okay. people praise Craigslist's design, Craigslist design, that's a double plural there, uh, because, you know, it, it is that simple. It doesn't really have any thrills. It's just, here's all the stuff. Other people find it overwhelming. And it's just, you know, link fest. They don't know where to go. And it's, you know, especially kind of the garishness of some of the uh, postings in there really turn them off. I suppose one question I have for you is how important do you think the design is to the product making money, which is kind of, I guess, joined to this current discussion about Craigslist. Well, not so much making money, just being successful is probably better. Yeah, well, you know, nobody sees the bits underneath the surface except for web developers who sometimes go to a website and look at view source and check out the code. But to everybody else, the design, and that by that I mean the full interface, visual and interaction and information, that is the product, Right. So how successful is the product to the product? <laughs> it's pretty much <laughs> so very it's basically successful. 100%, you know, it's, it's the most important thing. Yeah, because, I mean, again, nobody's really experiencing it through, you know, your JavaScript code, right? They're not going through things function by function or actually looking at your markup tags when they're using a product. They're using the UI components you have. They're looking at the screen with their eyes. Or even if they're in a screen reader, they're using all of the uh, actual content you have in there to read and understand what they can do. So the design of the product is the product. It's interesting because a lot of the people who listen to our show are bootstrappers and you know bootstrapping developers and usually don't have the money to kind of afford or engage a designer, so they end up having to do, this, do that themselves. Yeah, well, it depends. You know, there's many of the software that we use was actually created by developers that have just either a sense of aesthetic or understand where they have gaps and fill them through the opinions and testing of others. Right. Uh, like I worked with Larry Tesler during my time at Yahoo. He was one of the uh, early engineers on the Mac and kind of the father of cut and paste. Right. And he was an engineer by training, but he did design work like he would. Um, I can't remember. I think he was uh, I'm spacing on his last name, but he was working with someone else. Bill Atkinson. 
on uh, this feature on the Mac. And during the day, Bill would come in, or during the night, Bill would come in and write code. And then Larry would come in in the morning and he'd test that code with users and try and get feedback. And he was doing it in a very sort of usability engineering kind of way, but it was design work, right? And, you know, that file edit or, or copy and paste is so ubiquitous and it's considered sort of a design of uh, operating hmm. systems, but it was, you know, it was created by engineers. It, it seems to me that what you describe as user experience and, and I guess even your interface design is almost less about artistic design as it is in just trying to understand how humans are going to uh, address the product. So it's almost like if you're talking to a salesperson, someone who's an expert in sales, they'll say, okay, look, this is how we want to set up the meeting. This is the things we need to say early on. This is how we manage the relationship. They, they sort of develop this understanding of, of how an interaction process works and how to make, make sure that it's going to work out okay. And, you know, whereas the artistic aspect of like, okay, well, what colors are we going to make things and what fonts are we going to choose topography and, and things is sort of like a, the next step. Like the first step is just trying to figure out the sort of stages of, uh, of the experience. I mean, how, how do you think about it? Yeah. I, like I was saying at the beginning, there's so many layers and all this, right. And they all kind of add up, which is why, even though it's so easy to go make software on the web, right. not everything really does very well. Right. And there's, there's lots of issues around that, but people's impressions are, formed so much by what they see and how they go through that flow. And that informs, you know, how they use the product, what they get it to do. And even little considerations can make a huge deal. So just to talk about the, the visual design side of the coin, uh, the, the first book I wrote, which was, yeah, I guess, eight years ago or something like that, was uh, called Sightseeing. And it was really about, at the time, there was this tension kind of that you're alluding to between um, design and, I guess, usability. So the usability experts were out there saying it must be functional above all else. If people can't understand it, they can't use it, it's pointless. And there's a design crowd out there that was saying, well, it also has to be, you know, aesthetically pleasing and beautiful and, you know, visuals matter too. And so kind of the central thesis of that book that I wrote is that it's the two of the things together. And the visual design actually supports the usability because when you think about how you do visual design, there's essentially two intertwined parts one is you know the color selection the font selection the image selection this sort of creating an appropriate personality or brand or look and feel through the visuals but the other part is the visual organization if you give something a lot of visual weight that's the thing people are going to notice if you make things look very similar visually the people are going to group that and associate them together if you make things look very distinct people will think they're separate functions or not consider them as part of the same process and those kinds of visual design decisions play a huge role in usability in how people can or can't use software, um, which is why, you know, again, the thesis, the thesis there was these two things are intertwined and you can't really separate them. And so is Apple the perfect uh, real world example of how that all hangs together? Um, well, interestingly, I just was reading an interview last night. Uh, in bed on my iPad, ironically, um, <laughs> with the former CEO of Apple, John Scully, talking about how he sort of understood the Steve Jobs method, right? And one of the points that he made in there was he was talking very recently to someone who was a developer. And uh, that developer had back-to-back -back meetings with Apple and Microsoft in the same day about whatever service they were doing. And when he went to Apple, the people in the room that everybody in the meeting deferred to was the designers, 
when he went to the Microsoft meeting, there was no designers in the room. <laughs> right. yeah, in, oh, fact, I, in fact, I just read a, uh, a, something this morning was talking about how Paul Graham's essay on the topic that the reason that Yahoo had so many problems and was passed up by Google was that it, it lost its hacker-centric culture. And it was sort of the hackers were replaced by suits. Um, but the argument that this guy made against that was that, well, Apple is not a hacker-centric culture. It's a designer-centric culture that the designers have the final say, and they're the ones that are in the room for the big decisions are made. Um, so in a sense, Apple is winning by design, not by winning by code. Yeah, and, you know, I think that that aesthetic carries through down across the whole company, right? When they say the designers have the final say, it's the designers have the final say through proxy of Steve Jobs because he gives such a damn about design, right? right. And, and they sort of channel his attention to details and focus on design. That's how decisions get made. And places like Google, you know, the founders or the co-founders are engineers. And so they sort of channel the value of engineering and technical solutions and things like that. And that kind of is what carries the weight over there, right? And you know, all these founders. And it's interesting. It's it's a fractal because that you know the the person at the top will hire people who thinks the way that they do, and they will hire people who they think who thinks the way they do. So essentially, that will propagate throughout the company. Yep, yeah, that's how you make culture, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's why a lot of uh, you know the, the quote unquote suits say uh, culture is really the most important thing in a company because the thing that aligns everybody along some similar vision. Otherwise, everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off in different directions. So they don't have this sort of shared sense of what they're doing. So, you know, what I'd be curious about is, is how you got into this field. I mean, it seems that people who become web designers often start out as graphic designers. They study design in school and they sort of migrate to the web, uh, or at least they did in the past when the web was, uh, was younger. But what was your path to getting in this field? Yeah, I was actually uh, pretty similar. So I, was, I actually started out in engineering when I was in uh, undergrad. And I did uh, close to a year of engineering, and then I decided that uh, staying up late coding, um, and this time it was, you know, what was it, C-sharp was not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I switched over to the art and design program. And when I made that switch, I took a internship at uh, NCSA, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, right. which at the, at the time was where Mark Andreessen was building uh, NCSA Mosaic. Well, for, wait, hold on one second. So that, first of all, that's really cool <laughs> that you can get an internship like that. Where were you? Were you at uh, University of Illinois? Yeah, University of Illinois, Champaign. Because that's where that that's where the yeah Champaign because that's where the supercomputing center is located. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now C sharp didn't come out until what like uh, two thousand around two thousand or so two thousand one two thousand two, but the the the. Netscape and, and that whole thing was going on, or at least the first version of the Mosaic browser was what like ninety three ninety four. Yeah, so, so maybe it was C plus plus. I may have my. Uh... Labeling wrong. Yeah, I yeah. Think it was C, C plus plus, and then C sharp, right? Is that right? Yeah, C, yeah, C sharp. Yeah, C sharp. Right, came in the two thousands, right? So yeah, was okay. C C plus would have been two C plus plus. That was what I was doing. Okay. Um, Pre Java. After this, they started actually teaching Java in, uh, in the CS departments at, at uh, University of Illinois. Yeah, because Java was sort of influenced. Um, uh, you know, well, um, it was influenced probably by a lot of things, but obviously it was influenced by C++, and then uh, C-sharp was influenced by Java. But not to get did you, just, just a quick question. Did you know that something big was happening when you were there, like that Mark Andreessen was doing that? Oh, well, yeah, the web was pretty amazing. You know, when I came on board, the browser was done. I mean, I wasn't part of the team that actually did Mosaic. My uh, mentor at um, 
in grad, and when I later went on to do grad school, Colleen Bushell, she was actually the designer on, you know, and designer in quotes here. She was the person from the design background that got involved in that project. So yeah. she's the person responsible for the little spinning uh, navigator that let you uh, know that something was going on. Yeah. I don't know if you guys use Mosaic, but it had this S with a little globe in the middle. Yep. And that would sort of spin in the upper right-hand corner to let you know a page was loading. Yeah. So, and that pretty much defined load, loading concepts in yeah, that way. still there, right? You yep. look at any browser, they still have it. And it, IE had that with the spinning IE thing. Uh, Netscape yep. did it with the spinning like little lighthouse or whatever. Yeah, so she did that. And, you know, she worked on a lot of the uh, original Chrome stuff there, too, with just the whole paradigm of what's home, forward, and back. But that, this yeah. is actually a really great uh Resegue or pull back to the first question you guys asked, right? Because Andreessen was a developer, Colleen was a designer, and he was doing a lot of the decisions that ultimately impacted design coming from a development background, right? I, I don't know the full story of how back, forward, and home and all those things kind of came into fruition. Um, but, you know, obviously everything that she did was a collaboration between him and her and the rest of the team over there. It's funny how you just take that stuff for granted. You kind of feel like it's always been there, but someone had to create those tools when that when that product was first invented. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love those stories. I, I heard another story about how kind of the image tag came to fruition. And uh, Jeffrey Veen was talking about this recently. So he was talking about an email exchange. There was like a mailing list early in the day that uh, Tim Berners-Lee and Mark Andreessen were on. And Mark Andreessen fired off a proposal and said, oh, here's how I'm thinking of doing image. Other people chimed in with different ideas and then i guess a week later he said okay i implemented it like this img and you know <laughs> other people <laughs> chimed in but he's the one that shipped the code so right. uh, it, it went out there and, and and veen calls it a rough consensus running code and it, it's amazing <laughs> how many times that that's the thing that actually makes a decision right when somebody just goes and does the thing oh okay it's done all right it kind of works let's yeah let's it's go done. with that right that's right yeah that, that, that often happens in large companies as well. I've seen that in corporate, corporate culture. Basically, when you get a doer who just does it, and then all of a sudden the corporate, the corporate company will basically follow the lead of the doer. Well, the Obviously. major problem is most co- corporations don't do anything. <laughs> right, right. There's a lot of undoers or non-doers, and that's what slows them down so much. Did, so when you, were, when you switched over to the design program, I mean, did you have a good sense of design coming in? Were you someone who was sort of good at drawing or painting as a kid so you that was like a dual sort of talent that you had that you knew going into college so when the engineering wasn't working out as well as you liked you thought oh yeah i'll just go design or did you just completely say hey i, I have no idea if i have any talent but i'm gonna try it anyway yeah I, I was always both sides right um when i was working with computers i was using them to do art or when i was you know back when i was programming basic you know who knows when that was but i would use it to make like ascii art of space spaceships launching using like the little printf commands. Um, so I always had this sort of duality. Um, I would definitely not say I'm a very strong artist. There's much better illustrators and painters and graphic designer, designers out there than me. I think where um, I have sort of um, a good skill set is really the combination of what can the technology do and how can the design support that. And you know, that's sort of what I've carried with me as I've moved on. Right. And, and so when you were working, when you moved over to the design field, um, I mean, how much of that was just sort of a real abstract sense of design versus 
um, I mean, I guess back in, when, when was this? It was 90, 94, 5, 6 era? Yeah, 95-ish, 95, 96-ish. Yeah. So that was probably before anyone's really thinking about web design. Yeah. Because, yeah, we really wasn't, it was barely even graphical at that point. So you, you learned sort of from just think about things in terms of uh, just standard design of like uh, graphic design, I guess, of, of any kind. Yeah, that's what the training was. Uh, you know, and we had other tools around um, kind of learning the digital desktop publishing tools. So back then we were working on things like Quark Express 2 or 3 or whatever it was. Um, and we did a lot of basic design stuff. But the stuff that really caught my attention was um, a lot of the information design work. So, again, just going back to Colleen Bushell, because she really had a strong influence on me back in my grad and undergrad days she uh worked with edward tufty who's written a lot of the quintessential books on information design yeah in fact uh, the one that has kind of the storm cloud animation on the cover i think it's the uh visual display, visual display of, of quantitative information is that it? yeah that's it so that was the project that she worked with tufty on and um you know so i think she took a lot from that experience that she passed on down to me and her students just about the information display principles that design enables and um that was what i gravitated to a lot more than you know just sort of i guess the, the art and um graphic design aspect of things i was a lot more interested in the information design and in how you can do layering and separation and move people through information and all that um, and couple that with you know all of a sudden there's a digital format for doing that aka the web and that was really really exciting at the time when, when a coder kind of makes a first draft of something and they don't know anything about design and they don't know how to lay things out or whatever, what, would you, what is the kind of most common rookie mistakes that you've seen? Um, I think the most common mistakes are there's really no hierarchy and separation. You know, everything is sort of equal and everything's fighting for everybody's attention. Uh, the, the really simple rule that I use that I think people that helps people understand this is everybody's screaming nobody gets hurt right so if you put out a layout and every single button looks exactly the same and there's 20 buttons on it what do you do it's difficult for the user to understand which button to click yeah there's just no prioritization at all right we, we come to each one of our interactions of software it's just a set amount of cognitive load that we have to you know use on that task and if you burn it trying to figure out what the heck's going on then you know that becomes a pretty frustrating experience pretty quickly. So how do you how do you fix that? What what do you do right to stop that from happening? So I think the first thing you can start to think about is you know what is the appropriate grouping of the items on this page and how can I use visual information to indicate that so people can use sort of their natural gestalt understanding of the world to form associations to get understanding. Um, so that's kind of one thing is grouping and the other thing becomes sort of a prioritization. And when you realize what's most important, secondarily important, or not really important at this point, the third bucket of stuff just get rid of. But once you realize sort of what's most important and secondarily important, then you can apply more or less visual weight and um, to the more important things. And visual weight is really just about creating contrast. So adding, if one thing is red, circular, and big, and another thing is small, square, and gray, guess which one has stronger visual weight? Because of the contrast. Yeah, because of the contrast between those things. So you can start to balance how much weight you give things and assign and associate that with the prioritization of what's on the screen and while all of a sudden you're thinking about design. Is there a way to use uh, st something that isn't con that has low contrast um, for, for use? Yeah, well, you know, the, the human eye basically picks out um, differences between things, right? 
That's sort of how our brain is wired. So if you have something that's really low contrast and you just have a little bit of contrast, that'll pop out. So if a composition is totally gray, everything is the same shade of gray, and then something's a little darker shade of gray, that'll pop out because of that difference. Um, so is that like, for example, on the Apple OS in the title bar, you know, for, for a typical app where they have the name of they have the name of the document that you currently have open. So it's sort of it, it lets you know that the the name of the document, but it doesn't completely overtake your eye because it's just a little off the gray of the, the main bar. Yeah, that that's actually a uh, pretty common technique. So what you want to what you can do to set context in applications, this is why a lot of Chrome is gray, is because you want that stuff to recede in the background and let the actual things you're interacting with come forward. Right. When you're using, say, like a Photoshop or what have you, you don't want all of the icons and the tools for that application screaming at you because you want to focus on the photo you're editing or on the page you're designing. So your so your software shouldn't really get in the way your your framework of, of what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a firm believer that the design shouldn't be in the way of tools and services and things like that. You know, a great analogy that my friend Jared Spool uses frequently is uh, air conditioning you know when's the last time you were in a meeting and somebody said hey i just i just want to point out whoever set the air conditioning it's just great you know not too hot not too cold you just did a fantastic job nobody says that right when it's working it's totally invisible to you when people yeah. talk about the air conditioning is when it's too hot or it's too cold when it's working it's totally invisible same with design if it's working you shouldn't you know, you shouldn't even know it's there, right? So, like, Facebook is a good example of that. And a lot of people go, oh, but Facebook's so bland. But actually, the reason why it's bland is so that the content comes out, so that people's pictures and what people say comes out, and you kind of ignore the rest of Facebook. Yeah, they spend a lot of time tuning um, the presentation of things, especially the feed. Um, I think over time, as the site has grown, there's definitely areas where they could introduce some hierarchy and contrast to things because there's situations where they're just not taking advantage of that very well. Everything's right. blue and gray and that's it, right? That's all they have to work with. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for them to tune that a bit more, but the rigor and the detail of things like the way the comments are represented in the feed and the way they call out the actions in the feed and all that, um, I guarantee there's a whole bunch of testing and thinking and reiteration underneath that. Is space important in design, and what role does it play? Well, again, it boils down to the contrast, right? By putting space around something, you call attention to it. It's sort of one of the principles um, underlying how we interpret visual information is that we'll use the empty spaces around things to form groupings and associations. So by introducing space in the right place, you can put focus on particular areas, or you can... Um, pace people through things or you can create distinctions between elements you know a lot of people think a oh, white space that's for aesthetic effect but it's actually very important for parsing and for moving people through information in a way that's quick and scannable and when you just go in and fill in all your white space with content because you can you break the ability of people many times to make their way through that information effectively Hey, um, Justin, can I ask a few questions? Yes, yeah, sorry, I've been hugging. I've been hugging <laughs> okay, the line. Let, let me just say something, okay? So before this podcast started, Luke, Justin yeah. called me up and said, "Listen, you know, I only slept for two hours last night, and I had some feelings replaced. So I have a headache, so you're going to have to carry the show. I'm really in a bad mood." <laughs> and I like he's all fired up. He won't even let me talk. He won't even ask me questions. So he got <laughs> excited. He's like, <laughs> you know, so okay, well, that's so that's good. So all right, um, my question is this. Um, eh, 
I had, I had had an idea at one point to write like a blog post that we sort of like tutorial like design or user design 101 for hackers because mm-hmm. this seems like there's just like a basic level understanding of sort of color theory, typography, uh, you know, spacing or grid systems that most non-designers have no clue about. Um, and it would it would seem like something like that would be really useful just to get non-designers who are building software up over a basic bar so they can express themselves in the code or, or, through the, or at least a first version of the design before they really even involve a designer. And and I was actually going to do this for my as sort of like a I want this for myself so I'll use it as a learning experience by writing it. This mm-hmm. may go on these things that I never end up doing. So if you were going to do something like that, what would be your sort of like you know what would be the basic elements that that you would that you think a non designer would need to understand to be a little better at doing that sort of thing? Yeah. So we, we talked about some of those just basic understanding of the visual organization things, which is hierarchy, prioritization, visual weight, all that. And it's not really that rough to do. Um, I actually wrote an article many years ago on just some of the basic principles underlying visual organization, so I might be able to save you some typing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the that, that, that's kind of step one, right? And then, you know, people, I think, really over-focus on the color selection and the font selection and all those sorts of things. That it, I'm not denying that that's important, but, you know, ultimately, is your site blue or purple? Is that really going to make or break it? Eh, probably not. Right. I was uh, working at eBay a number of years ago and we were building a new product called uh, eBay Express. And uh, the design team there made this thing orange. Right. And they had all these supporting arguments about why it was orange. And we went in and presented to the SVP who's funding the project. And he, you know, he looked it over, we talked about things, and he said, oh, you know, everything's looking pretty good, but, you know, hey, can you come back to me with just a couple other options on the color scheme? Let me see what else you guys can come up with. So the team went back, and instead of just exploring a couple other color palettes, they created this whole presentation about why it's orange. You know, orange is associated with value, and it's a unique color that we can own on the web, and this, you know, it's this really important defining thing for the next generation of eBay. And they went back and made some of those arguments and you know the SVP said at the end of it is like look you guys I just don't freaking like orange just go change it <laughs> and personally I think that was a lot of wasted effort and time on just that color set right because there's so many other more important things like what's the product doing for people how are they getting through it how's it creating value for the company how are you going to unramp people into the new product how can design move them through important flows and all this stuff there's all this much meatier, more important stuff that actually brings the product to life than whether it's orange or blue. Does it matter? I know I've asked this before, and sorry, Jason, I'm interrupting. But once again, does it matter if it looks good? Yeah, well, I think there are examples of products that don't look good that are, su- that are successful. And I think there are examples of products that look very, very good that are successful. People associate themselves with things that they want to kind of represent their personality and the vast majority of people want to believe they look good, right? Um, and so yeah. if you, they want to associate themselves with things that look good. Now, other many people have different kind of aesthetics of what is good and what's not. And when you're young, you know, think MySpace, right? The way you repre- what you, you think of what looks good is a lot more, uh, I guess, chaotic, if you will. And over time, you sort of hone in on what you actually associate with looking good. 
But, you know, fundamentally, I think we as human beings are sort of attracted to things of beauty. So there is there's no harm in trying to align with that natural attraction that's in human beings. Sorry, Jason, I interrupted. No, that's fine. It's fine. What one of the elements that I was thinking if you know if i like i said this article that theoretical article that i may and probably will never write <laughs> is that is the idea of spacing and, and i i started reading up on these uh something that's called a grid system which i had mm-hmm. never heard heard of before but i keep seeing popping up more recently uh, could you maybe describe i mean what exactly is a grid system and how does that play into sort of organizing a, a web page or web design yeah yeah so the grid I, system. Guess, or I guess even just a user interface design at all sure the, the grid system basically gives you a structure around which to do the visual organization stuff that I was talking about, right? So one of the and and this all boils down to gestalt again and, and how we perceive things visually. Uh, principles like alignment, proximity, similarity, continuance, um, spacing, all that stuff floods in. And what you do with the grid system is you basically have an underlying. Um, structure that you can lay things against and play into some of those pr- those principles, right? So you can have things in close proximity there. You can have continuance because the grid system lets you go from something that's a 50 by 50 to 100 by 100 to a 200 by 200, and that helps you play with prioritization. At, at the very least, like if you're super basic, don't know anything about any of this stuff, a grid system will at least allow you to align things. Is it an invisible grid system? Yeah, you usually don't see it. Sometimes one or two of the lines you make transparent through background colors or through lines or things like that, but the bulk of it is behind the scenes. So think of it like guides, like you might see yeah. guides in Microsoft Word or something like that. Right. It's, a, it's a kind of guides grid system that's invisible when it's on the finished product, but while you're designing, you've got it to line your little elements up. Right, and you know, one of the things that makes stuff really hard to parse visually is no alignment, right? Or everything is just sort of whacked around um, you know, this thing's center aligned, the thing below it's left aligned, then you've got like five other columns, and you're, it's just very hard to parse that and scan it in the way that we make sense of information visually. Is, is balance important? For example, if you, if you put a big square box on the top right of the page, should you, should you then essentially have a big square box on the bottom left of the page? Well, not if that big square box on the right thing is the number one thing to do on that page, and it represents your like, big call to action that makes you tons of money, right? <laughs> <Then> <laughs> okay, I, I, I wouldn't balance it. I would try and put the focus on that one that one prioritized element. And you can see this on like, you know, uh, e-commerce product pages, right? The call to action buy button is this huge high contrast thing generally situated in the kind of middle-ish slash center of the page. Um, And that's, you know, to draw your eye there and have that be the thing you look at. And ideally it's paired next to the product image because images usually attract our attention and we spend time looking at them. And if you can make that association, here's the image, here's the buy button. That's where the eye goes quite frequently. Interesting. So that's like an interesting trick that I'd never heard of. Put an, put, put an action near an image. It depends on the type of image. It's got to be an information-rich image. If it's an image that's just like stock photography or uh, seems irrelevant to the content, at task people will just tune it out and ignore it. And having a call to action associated next to that kind of image can actually make that uh, call to action blend into that image and get ignored too. Right. There's, so there's all sorts of things that we do when we parse information. Another one that many people get into that's a common mistake is try and make calls to action very, very different, like too different. And what happens is people generally perceive that as an ad because it doesn't look like anything like the rest of the UI. Right. And this is where the subtlety of a designer actually comes in play, into play really strongly. And it's sometimes hard for people who don't have um, just sort of a background on visual 
understanding is, you know, how much contrast do you lay in there? But if you think of Amazon.com, basically they have their image on the far left-hand side of the page and their call to action on the far right-hand side of the page. So I guess it's not a steadfast rule, right? Uh, You know, as I said at the beginning, the quintessential design answer to everything is it depends because (laughs) it's, it's all about the context of what's around it, right? And it's all about the context of what else you have on the page. If one site has a really, really strong brand color, like a big red brand color, and that's represented in their banner or their logo or whatever, then they can't necessarily um, use the same amount of contrast or the same kind of contrast than a site that has a really muted and sort of faded palette for their company brand and logo. Mm. And they're they're playing with a different overall list of things. You know, so the the idea of like giving some tips or some structure to how to think about this stuff is, is is it seems like it's a little difficult because the way you describe it is that design is an art, and I don't mean art just mean like as in artistic. I mean an art as in it's not scientific. It's not like a bunch of series of rules. It, it really is contextual, and it seems like. And so I'm wondering is is visual design something that few people are ever really going to be good at no matter how many take classes they take it's like you know like painting like an art right i mean most people well, just are not ever going to be good artists no matter how many art classes they take but like i mean just like coding right and not everybody's going to be a great developer no matter how much they study computer science sure. or no matter how much code they write and i think all of these things are both an art and a science and i would take development on the same plane right i mean you can have all of the scientific rigor around how you're writing your algorithms, how you're optimizing your markup, but every once in a while you need a creative solution, right? Or you need to have sort of your personal take on how this thing's going to be architected in order for it to work. Well, I, I guess one thing you notice you with teach. Yeah, and I guess one thing you notice about really great coders is their taste. You know, how they organize their code, how they attack the problem, how they think about it. And I imagine that's the same thing with design. You know, they can know all the you can know all the rules, but it's really how your brain puts it all together and it just shows, you know, sort of really good taste versus sort of mediocre taste. Well, you learn all the rules so you can break them, right? I mean, this is the essence of art and uh, and music and all that. Like people that play jazz spend a ton of time learning scales so that when they start playing, they can forget about the scales and <laughs> and you know kind of do what right. fits with the uh, with the music at the time. But one thing I've noticed about designers and working with professional designers is they all seem to have a style, and I can't quite work out if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think um, we're attracted to things with personality, and. You know, take a look at anything that you sort of consider a masterpiece in the world, right? Whether it's an architecture or art or writing or literally, they all have a point of view. They all have a perspective that they bring to the world. And that perspective is what makes them unique. Whereas if you think about all the stuff that's really bland and boring in the world, like, say, corporate websites in most cases, <laughs> the brochureware website, there is no personality. There is no point of view. It's 50 people all chiming in with their opinion, and you can, you can see it, right? It kind of comes through. Mm. So having that perspective and that point of view in a design that many times can come from a designer, it doesn't have to. Um, it can come from all sorts of different sources. But having a point of view and a perspective and a personality is really, really powerful and important. So is that a good rule of thumb when hiring a designer to, to look through their work and make sure that you like their general concept, their viewpoint? I, um, I think there's two things you should look for when you hire a designer. One is, can they get the big picture behind what you're doing? Do they understand the purpose of what you're doing, why you're doing it for who, what are the factors that are involved in making it 
successful, right? The big picture. Do they grok the big picture? And then secondarily, do they have a, a strong attention to detail? Meaning, do they, are they really thinking about all the different choices they're making, why they're making them, the considerations they go through, what the impact of those choices is, all the little detailed, nuanced stuff. Because if you know the big picture and you know all the little details, then everything in the middle sort of works itself out. Uh, too many designers, I think, or people who call themselves designers are focused on the middle part and don't have the big picture and don't spend the time and the rigor that they need on the details. And as a result, they're in the middle and that's sort of the middleocrity zone. Hmm. Um, that, that, that's how I would look and try and hire designers. Yeah, I, I have always, no, I've noticed that detail is kind of very important to to make you think that something is really high quality. It has it, it kind of has little fine details that you wouldn't necessarily notice unless you went looking for them. But overall, all the fine details add up to just very high quality. Yeah, there's a great Charles Eames quote, which is basically, uh, the details are the design, right? Mm. He's, he's, he, I think he's, he, he said something like, the details don't make the design, the details are the design. That's, how, that's all the choices you make is what leads to the final product. And the more meticulous and focused you are in every single one of the details, the more likely you're going to have something that's coherent and structured and aligns to that big picture. Right. What are some of the designs on the web that you think are the most cutting edge? You know, how, because it seems like we go through these phases where um, the what the style shifts. You know, and I remember when like. Um, you know, the 37 Signals base camp thing came in and everyone was sort of copying them for a while. And I'm wondering if you're sensing, you know, a direction or a, a style that's starting to take hold now. Yeah, I, I think what we're doing is we're maturing the market in general, right? So early on in the web, a lot of people just came on board and did all sorts of things. But now you've got a much bigger audience, right? We're projected to hit two billion worldwide by the end of 2010. And as you mature the market and as you get to um, situations where it's not just about the functionality anymore, it's about the overall experience, you're going to see products that are focused on more around managing simplicity for you, making things easier to grok. Just the sheer competition of the number of things there drives the market to reduction. So hopefully there's going to be a bit more reductionism. And, you know, I don't mean that like visually, I just mean that in the amount of overhead you need to go and start using a site or a product as things mature and people understand what the technology does and how it does it, then it's really focused on that experience more. Are, are there any, any sites out there now, uh, and I mean more in the terms of applications as opposed to just pure informational sites that you think are really cutting edge right now or, or setting a new uh, sort of a new style? Do you think are awesome? Well, it depends yeah, on yeah. what you define what you cutting, cutting edge, right? Okay. What do you think is awesome? What do I yeah. think is I, so I, I'll be frank with you guys. I, I, I really hate that question. <laughs> everybody, was everybody, Justice, every, that was just his question. That was just every, everybody question. asks that question. And <laughs> you know, if you, if, if you I mean, there's lots of things that are really awesome for lots of different reasons. Right. And right. just simply saying, Oh, I like that in many cases is really just selling it short, what they're doing and why they're doing, uh, why that aspect of things that they're doing is great. Like I'll give you guys just a couple really small nuanced examples of things I like. So there's a, I've, I've lately been doing a lot of to-do tracking. There's this little site called to-do, we do list or we doist. Um, and it's super bland, doesn't do a lot of things, but it's all around creating to-dos 
and they've used a, a ton of inline actions and really small interactions like you can add things and stick things in really light and quick and I really like that experience for just the immediacy and ability for me to stay in a single page and get a lot of stuff done very quickly and easily. So I, I like it for its interaction design of to-do lists. Okay. And, and that's, that's one example, right? You know, all, a lot of other things around that product, maybe they're not the greatest, maybe, um, you know, they have other issues, but that specific aspect of it is actually pretty useful for me. I was wondering if we could ask you about, um, I guess I'd like to ask you about a couple of your presentations that you've given recently. Sure. Yeah. Um, one is you called sign up forms must die. Yep. Um, and yeah, I'd like to maybe just give us a, you know, a quick version of that because I think that's a really interesting problem because as web applications, you ultimately need to get a certain amount of information to, to be able to move forward. But yet you put too much in there. People seem to get frustrated and not want to go, not even want to use your product. So I'd be curious what your take on that is. Yeah. With, so my central thesis around sign up forms must die is, you know, Somebody tells you about a website or you get a link, you go and check it out. And what's the first thing you have to do is go fill in a web form, right? Before you can actually use it, before you can actually see what it's doing for you. Maybe you can take like a tour or any of that kind of stuff. But, you know, step one is, okay, give us your name. Give us your email address. Agree to our terms of service. Agree to our privacy policy. You know, solve this CAPTCHA riddle. Um, and I think that's just a really shitty first-time experience for a new product. Instead, I think it's much better to try and give people a sense of what you can do for them and how with a few lightweight interactions that really explain the product that let you get in there and start using it and see some value immediately. And then when you get that value, then jump in and, you know, say, okay, if you want to continue or you want us to save this or you want to share what you just made or whatever, then we just need a couple of pieces of information so that we can create an account for you to save it. And at that point you get what it does, you know, if it's for you or not, and you either become a customer or you don't. And frankly, getting that sign up up front and then just finding out that person's not going to use your product once they figure out what it does is kind of worthless, right? Is there, are you a little bit um, at risk of the kind of Amazon one-click problem where Amazon kind of had this, they introduced one-click and they patented one-click, but people didn't really and don't really like it because they can't actually tell that something's happened. So quite a lot of time, if you go to a site that does require a sign up, if you didn't have a sign up, it's a bit of a strange experience to just feel like, you know, am I actually using this app? Like, is my work going to be saved? I mean, what? Well, that's a, that's a design question, right? <laughs> You've got to have the right design that answers those questions for people. Um, you know, I think you can make it awkward and weird that you don't know if you're using it or not, but you can also make it a very um, sort of gradually engaging experience that makes it very clear what step you're in, what you're doing, how you can go to the next uh, step and things like that. So do you think it would be a reasonable thing that if you had some sort of productivity app that they're going to use to create something um mm -hmm. some, and you know like like you mentioned like a to-do list even or whatever that you just say hey create list they go and they start creating a list and then it, something comes up and or a little pop-up or some slide something slides out or informs them and says this hasn't been saved and then at that point if they hit saved then it asks for your email address and a password or something yeah a, a great example of this that i use in that talk actually is this site called genie uh -huh. g-e-n-i and you know there's a bunch of different family tree makers out there. The vast majority of them, their first step is sign in, sign up, you know, create an account. What Genie does right on the first page is, okay, start making a family tree. Are you male or female? Give us your name and start family tree. And the next step, you're adding your mother and father. 
So you're invested. You're, you're invested by the time you even think about signing up. Yeah, within like two clicks, you've already made a family tree. It's like, voila, you're successful. Oh, and by the way, that's the entire purpose of Genie to make family trees. So within you know a couple interactions, you've done what you came there to do, right? You've been successful. And in the meantime, you learned what the software is and what it does for you. And you didn't do it by filling in a form and agreeing to a whole bunch of shit up front. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I think that's, you know, that's a productivity application, making family trees. Sure. Uh, and, and you can apply that kind of thinking to a lot of different models, right? And most of the time, people don't. They just don't think about the first-time experience beyond, oh, we need a sign-up form. Oh, and we need to, you know really drive people to sign up and tell them why they should sign up. And that's like the extent of their thinking about the first time experience. Imagine, imagine if everything in the world worked like that. Imagine if you go into a restaurant, right? And they're forcing you to sign up and it's just, it's just crazy. Could it apply to Twitter and Facebook? Yeah. And Twitter's actually been doing this. Uh, I've talked with a few of the folks at Twitter and they're, they're very on board with this idea of gradual engagement. In fact, I wrote an article recently about how they applied uh, some of the gradual engagement principles by adding a step to their sign-up flow and they increased conversion by like 25 to 40% in terms of uh, engagement, increased engagement. Have you seen a movie called Man on a Wire? Uh, sounds familiar, but I'm not it's, sure. It's about a guy who tightrope walked across the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, one of the things that they do in that is to, to get the, the, this big iron rope across those Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. Is they take a bow and arrow and they shoot across a little... Uh, ball of thread mm-hmm. and then they pull that that ball of thread and then that gets a bigger piece of rope and then that gets a bigger piece of rope and gradually they get to this big iron cable this this whole gradual um uh, involvement thing sounds a lot sounds similar to that as a metaphor yeah could be. I mean, you can use that in a metaphor and also you know, where i stole actually a big piece of that from is uh, will wright who's the guy who wrote uh the sims and spore and right. i saw him give a talk a long time ago where he said in my games, I focus on making people successful in the first five seconds of play. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Spore, you're a little creature, and within the first five seconds, you eat something, and you get a little bit bigger. Like, ooh, I can do this. Oh, I'm great. You know, or in Mario, you start up, and all of a sudden, you get a gold coin right in front of you. And you know, bloop, and you power up. Right. So right off the bat, they make you successful, and that teaches you how the game works. Because in Spore, for example, you're running around and eating a bunch of stuff at the beginning, so you grow. And you're also a little bit vested, right? Because <laughs> you've yeah. already done something. Oh, I got bigger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, exactly. I just like that kind of thinking about engaging people, right? I, I hate the kind of thinking of we need to create a record set in our database with some name value pairs for you know first name, last name, email address, all that crap. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's treating people as a, as a, as a data set in a, in, a, in a database rather than a human being. Let's say you have a website that basically you have a paid product yep. and, and really that your only real access to that is as a paid product. Um, but would you then go with this so you'd get to the front page and you could start using that product and you wouldn't, would you mention that it's a paid product at that point? Well, I think this is, this is the model a lot of those companies are coming to. They all have sort of a freemium version Right. And a lot of them allow you to start using it, figure out what you're doing. And then within the product, they message you to get into paid features. Um, and the amount of companies that I see moving to that model to me indicates that it's actually a decent model. So would you mention anything about paying when you hit the page in the first place? I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that sneaky not to mention the paying aspect 
the first time you hit the page. I was talking to a guy from Smug Mug recently in uh, Boston, and he showed me the before and after designs that they did for their service, which is a paid service. And the before view had um, all the stuff about all the different rates and everything and what it was going to be. When they redesigned it, they totally simplified it. They got rid of all that upfront information about understanding what kind of account you have, and they just got you in and going. And he said, you know, the amount of value that they've extracted from that process has been like 200%. Wow. Interesting. And, and it's all about, you know, just managing the, let me get to put this into a real world perspective. You go and meet somebody in the street, right? And you say, Hey, my name's Luke. They're like, first name, last name, email address, agree to my terms of service. Where do you live? <laughs> How do I contact you? You know, everything is, like, it's just totally unnatural, right? Um, instead, there's an actual conversation there's ha- that happens, and there's this gradual process by which you get to know that person. You decide if you want to talk to them ever again or not. That would be uh, a great viral video. <laughs> saying yeah. if, if people were web forms <laughs> or web apps, yeah. you know, enjoying all the mistakes as just real people, this is how they'd behave. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that is a methodology that you can, to, once again, circle back to the beginning. We're talking about what can some developers do. There's actually a really great exercise that I've seen a number of folks do where you just put like a browser Chrome around one person and they uh-huh. respond the way the interface responds. And the other person is a human being and they try to have a conversation. Right. So I saw somebody do this recently around like an event planning form. And one person was acting out the role of the form. The other person was acting out the role of the human being. And so the human being comes up to the forum and says, hey, you know, I'm thinking of maybe having an event at your location. And the farmer's first name. And the guy says, well, you know, well, do you guys actually, what kind of group, size groups can I have here? First name. Okay, uh, I guess I'll give you my first name. Now, when can I find out how, how what kind of group can I have here? Last name. <laughs> and you just start laughing, right? But really quickly you realize how those interactions work. Um, and it's sad, but it's true. That's great. That's interesting. That's great. Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, so another uh, another presentation that I found interesting of yours, and I, I haven't had a chance to uh, watch the video, but I, I was looking at the slides, and I, it looks uh, it's very um, timely for me because I actually have a couple mobile projects that I'm going to be starting, and the title of the presentation was "Mobile First," as in the fact that rather than people design, or rather than uh, designers, developers thinking the website first, and then the um, the the mobile app as sort of like a retrofitting that onto or are you trying to take the web experience and put it on the mobile app. They're thinking the mobile first is experience, and I'd, I'd be you know I'd love to hear your um, your sort of talk yeah. on that. Well, I think I think you nailed the crux of the argument, which is traditionally the desktop version is done first and the mobile support. But there's a lot of reasons why the inverse actually makes more sense, and the kind of three that I call out in the presentation I've been talking about a lot. I've been giving this talk across a number of different places. The first one is, hey, mobile is just really exploding right now. And um, taking advantage of that opportunity. I think the mobile web, according to Morgan Stanley's internet research, uh, is growing eight times faster than the original web grew, which is just nuts. And every study after study, you see that those those numbers are not only coming true, they're actually moving faster. So there's huge opportunity and huge growth. Two, mobile has these natural constraints. The screen sizes are small. The connections are crappy. People are using a single thumb, which very much forces you to prioritize, constrain, and figure out what the core value you're giving people is at each point in the process of your application. When you got 1024 by 768, you can fiddle a lot of shit on that page. 
Right. Okay, sorry, should I be swearing? Maybe I shouldn't be swearing. No, it's yeah. fine. Well, as long as you're swearing oh, okay. at Justin, swear at him. <laughs> okay. There you I, go. Think, I think shit's an okay huh? word. Just don't go any deeper. Okay, I won't go any deeper. Well, can we can say crap. At 1024 <laughs> by 768, you can fill a lot of crap in there. Yeah. And most of what people put in there is crap. When you go down to like a 320 by 480 or standard-ish mobile screen, you got to throw away 80% of the stuff you had on the screen which means you need to have a real clear understanding of what needs to be on that screen and why. And that requires focus, that requires prioritization, which is all just good for design in general. You know, and, uh, and then the third, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go on. I was just going to give you the third part of why mobile first. The, the, the third part of mobile first is having a device that's um, in your pocket and it has all the sensors and capabilities that the, these devices have actually introduces a lot of opportunities for um, innovation. You know people's exact location down to 10 meters. Right. They have uh, embedded cameras so you can do video. They have embedded audio controls. They have touch based controls. They have uh, digital compasses that know the orientation of the user. They have accelerometers. You can tell how the device is oriented. Having all those capabilities in front of you lets you just really start rethinking what your service can do and how you can present the same information to people using those capabilities, which is great for thinking of new ideas and new experiences. Right. Um, and w- I, one thing that I like about building uh, mobile apps, I feel like because as it limits what you can do, it's 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 makes it easier not to screw up. Is once as long as you know what the interaction is supposed to be. It seems like when you have an entire web page, it's like okay, I want to do this, but now what do I have to do with all this extra space? <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, it's just sort of like okay, well, this is clearly a table view, right? And then I click on something, and then something else happens. It just seems from a non-artist perspective, it's just a little less daunting. Yeah, it's, it's just a lot simpler to, you know, but at the same time, it's harder, right? I mean, the, it forces you to get to simplicity, but it also really focuses you on nailing the tasks because the mobile environment is a lot more of a task-focused environment than it is a browse or navigate kind of environment. In fact, you don't want to browse around and navigate too much on mobile devices because you've got low connectivity, you don't have a lot of time, you're trying to get stuff done. And so... You have to have that rigor of making sure that process of getting things done on mobile accounts for all those constraints. But does that mean okay? But so now let's let's have a look at the inverse equation. A lot of apps were created for the iPhone, and then along comes the iPad. Yep. Now people had a lot more screen real estate, so they had to then rethink and make use of that new screen real estate. So how does your theory work regarding that? Well, perhaps non-ironically, one of the first guidelines in the iPad development. Uh, guideline is just because you got more screen real estate, don't get rid of all the simplicity that you had in your iPhone app and right. don't, you know, don't start adding features and all this other stuff just to cruft it up. I, I think what you are then able to do is introduce stuff that makes those uh, interactions you had in the iPhone more contextually relevant or more engaging or more active, right? The, the iPad in general this, we can have this whole conversation about like the context of different devices because I think that's a big topic right now that um, a lot of people are wrestling with. But the iPad is a lean-back device. It's like a casual-ish, more content consumption-driven experience than, say, something like the iPhone. Right? So in study after study, what you see is people use the iPad on the couch or they use it before they go to bed at night, which I actually did last night to read. And they use it to read things. They use it to browse. So the kind of design and the kind of interaction you have for those contexts is pretty different than the kind of context you have. Hey, I got my iPhone in my pocket and I'm trying to get to, you know, a restaurant right now. Very different use case than I'm thinking of having a trip to Paris. Let me play with the maps and explore it like you might Mm. do on an iPad. Mm. 
you know, different contexts, different UI. And um, that's a much bigger issue than just adding stuff when you move to that device, right? Right. Um, you, you have one presentation, let me get the name of it here, that was sort of a combination of the previous two that we just described, which is called um, uh, moving beyond Input Moving Beyond Forms, an mm-hmm. overview of how web applications can collect input through both mobile devices and desktop software, et cetera. You know, this seems like it brings some of these concepts together. I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking just a little bit about that one as well. Yeah, so uh, that one is focused really on... Um, we need to start thinking about ways that people can interact with our services, both online and offline. Yeah, it's a, let me back up a second. Contribution is just a hugely important thing for software, especially social software, which is kind of what all software is going to become over time, I think, because it fundamentally boils down to people, right? And people use things. Um, and so in that kind of environment, contribution is really important. And once again, you know, the default thinking around contribution in software has been so far input elements and forms and things like that. Yet we have all these new capabilities coming to us. We have all these opportunities to create different kinds of startup experiences, not just sign up forms. And so, you know, let's kind of go a little bit above the default thinking and, um, kind of approach the problem from a different way. It's, it's, it's essentially the last part, the part three of the mobile first talk that we talked about and the sign-up form must die kind of combined into one, as you suggested. Uh, you, you're working on a, a stealth startup and I, and I know that it's, I, I guess, given the fact that you listed as stealth, does that mean you, there's nothing you can say about it? Uh, not yet. <laughs> I, ah, can, I can say what? we're uh, chugging along to a little bit of an alpha software release and um, we've got some users in the system trying to break it for us. Well, I mean, is it web software or is it desktops? I mean, is it mobile? Is it, you know? It's, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. You know, that's sort of what the web is these days. We okay. have yet to make a TV version, but we've been uh, <laughs> focused on all the other versions. Interesting. Right. Okay, so when, when, when can we expect to see something? from? Hopefully from in the next month or so, we'll be uh, popping that out. How, how cool. long have you been working on the software? On, on software period or on this? Well, just the startup? Pro- I want, yeah, yeah, I guess the startup maybe. Yeah, uh, so I left Yahoo at the uh, beginning of April, and I think we started kind of headstrong on this towards the beginning of June, so about four or five months-ish, from, you know, company formation, idea generation, picking an idea, starting to build it, design, test. Are you the founder or co-founder? or? Yeah, I'm a co-founder. I have uh, two partners, one on the technical side and uh, one on the business side. And and I'm sorry, I missed the part. When when are you going to release sort of some public beta? Hopefully in the next month or so. Um, oh, you know, we, we'll release it when it's ready. <laughs> Is does that, it have a name? Does it have a public name? Uh, we have a working name right now, so I'm, I'm hesitant to put it out there just yet. But Okay, that's fine. We, it's, called, like a, it's called Google. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, before that, I saw in your bio that you were an entrepreneur residence at Benchmark Capital. I'd be yeah, really still, curious. Oh, you still are? Yeah, still there. Oh, so they're incu- so Benchmark is incubating this startup. Is that yeah? The, the entrepreneur in residence rule is um, kind of designed to get people into their next thing, especially in the startup space, right? So some people that take an EIR role go and join an existing startup in a company's portfolio, but a lot of them mo- mostly go on to start startups, right? So that's kind of the process I'm going through right now. Okay, so when so when you do start working on a startup, then you're still considered an entrepreneur residence. I, I I sort of thought that when you were an entrepreneur residence, you were sort of in between gigs, so to speak, that you were participating in on evaluating, um, you know, uh, yes. deals that were coming in. Is that yes. that true? Yes, that is all true. Um, they, they do it in kind of six month increments. 
Okay. So, it, you know, I'm in, I got a six month engagement there. And okay. during part of it, I was a lot more focused on what you're talking about. And during the latter half, I've been a lot more focused on actually building, building a product. So how does that work? Before you started working on your actual uh, startup, your stealth mm-hmm. startup, um, well, first I'd like to ask, how did, how did you even become an entrepreneur resident? That seems like a pretty cool uh, gig if you can get it. Yeah, um, as many things happen in Silicon Valley, it's through uh, the strength of kind of our network. So my partner in the current startup, uh, Sam Pilar, he was an EIR who worked with one of the partners at Benchmark Capital previously. Okay. So through that relationship is kind of how we made that happen. Right. And do you, when you're doing that, before you're working on your startup, I mean, are you getting paid a real salary or are you just kind of, or is it kind of like thing working like a graduate stipend kind of thing? You're just, yeah, you know, yeah. We've, we've been bootstrapped up until now. So the three of us have not been taking any salary of the startup. Oh, so when you're an entrepreneur residence, you're not even getting paid really. Oh no, it, it, that depends on per firm, right? Okay. Um, I, it, it really matters on the VC firm, whether or not they're paying you. Many of them will give you, you know, space to work. Okay. and support to the network and rely on you. Um, some of them have paid engagements, other ones don't, right? It's so, part of the actual startup we're doing. We are using um, founder money right now, and, uh, I see. Yeah, not, not taking a salary. So did you, when, when, when the relationship, the entrepreneur residence um, situation started for you, was it the conversation that you have an idea, or you and a, and a couple of your co-founders or potential co-founders have an idea and you're going to work it out over the next few months? Or do they just say, hey, come jump in with us, we'll see what happens? I mean, how did that? More of the latter than the former, right? Um, okay. You know, we started, our company started out as a team first, a market second, and an idea third. Okay. So that's hmm. sort of the process we've been going through. That's an interesting. That's an interesting uh, way to do it. So you, I guess you had a lot of uh, whiteboard brainstorming sessions about. Okay, what what are we going to make? <laughs> well, we, had, we had a long list of things that we wanted to do. Right, and, you know, at first our exploration around what what space do we think actually makes sense for us, uh, given the type of opportunity we want to go after. So there's a lot of uh, debate and conversation around that. And once we sort of nailed the space, and everybody felt really good about the opportunity there, then we went through a lot, a large number of iterations on actual ideas. And it took us a while to settle in on the concept we're going for right now. And, it, you know, it's always, as with all things startup, everything is always in flux. How did, how did you test your market assumptions? Well, we're testing them right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, we, we, you, you don't have to test the market assumptions. You can just basically say, hey, this market has this and this opportunity. Here's this and this space to play, right? That's this relatively... Um, easy to model at a high level. What you need to do is really say, is do we have a viable thing to address that market or not? And today, I think really that's tested by putting people into a product and seeing what they do and how they react. Is there somewhere that's, uh, that doesn't give anything away where listeners of this show could basically send an email to you saying, hey, when you've got something, I'm yeah. interested in knowing what the hell it is. Sure, yeah, they can go to uh, bagcheck.com and uh, enter their email address on there. And um, we'll ping them over some time. It might take a bit, but we'll ping them. You said bag check as in? Yeah, as in B-A-G-C-H-E-C-K. Okay. It's important that people know how to spell because my product that I've been working on, our bootstrapping, AppIgnite, everybody, at, like as in Ignite, an application, everyone mm-hmm. thinks, it, it thinks we're saying Epic Night. <laughs> yeah, no, we so, actually have a, we actually have a spellable word. <laughs> right. In fact, someone actually thought we. <laughs> someone actually thought I, I I don't know if they said this jokingly or not. They thought we were saying a pig at night. 
<laughs> so yeah. The joys of naming. Uh. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to bag b a g c h e c k dot com, and I'm entering in my email address right now. Okay, there you go. So, Justin, are, do you have any more questions? Or are we? Um... I think I think that's that's been a really informative show. In actual fact, I I'm gonna. All of my developer friends, I'm going to forward them to this because this, to me, has been the 101. If you're a, if you're like a bootstrapper and a solo developer, this show will what what we've discussed well, so even far. Even if you're will not really a you solo developer, I mean, if you're part of a of a small startup or even you're working on an internal team and you're trying to make your product better, I mean, everything that he's that Luke is saying and all the things that he's trying to teach you through his presentations apply to any size company. So yeah, that's no, true. I, yeah. And also, I wouldn't say just in general. I don't think our market is just bootstrappers. Our, our listeners, I think we got a lot of people who aren't bootstrappers. So okay, um, I, I don't. I, I think there are a lot of people. I can tell by the people who list by the comments we get that there's a range of people who uh, do kind of things I described, and there's probably a lot of other things. So, but I've yeah. been told you've you've told me. Okay, it, it, the other <laughs> thing I'd say is if you go to um, Luke's site, which is LukeW.com, um, he has a lot of writings that are, uh, you know, like I guess PDFs or, or pages, or, or you know, or just HTML. But if you go to his presentation section, there are PDFs and videos that he's given, and they they look great. So all these things that we talked about, mobile first, sign up forms must die, and there's about like I don't know, like twenty or thirty of these things, um, look like they're very much worth. Um, Sitting, take some time and, and watching. Um, yeah, if you want if you want to burn a weekend or two on PowerPoint, there you go. Yeah, well, I, I'll probably watch the video, but I'm telling you, okay. you know, <laughs> even better. I, because you know, as someone who's creating a you know a, a, a web application and mobile apps, I'm you know I. I'm very confident in my ability to create and write code, and I'm fairly confident in my ability to create a decent user experience. But I, the design aspect and, and, and honing the user experience and all these things is, I, I you know, definitely could use some work. So I think what you're teaching here is extremely valuable. So everybody, right. if you're interested and you, you think you need to work on this stuff or you think, you know, go to LukeW.com and check it out. Luke, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you very much. My yes. pleasure. Thank you guys for yeah. having me. It's been great. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Luke. Re- really, it was great meeting you. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs> <laughs>